Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. God speaks to us in his word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord, and together we say, thanks be to God. Thank you, Leslie. Leslie Gabbert and her husband Mark um, are two of our just kind of most prized possessions in this church. She is a wonderful, godly woman. Her, her husband as well. They lead a community group. And um, there's quite a few of you, I think, that are a part of that group. But we love you guys. Thank you for being a part of our church. Thank you for serving so well. You just did a fantastic job reading a very uplifting uh, passage. So we appreciate that. Uplifting sermon day. If you're a guest, you're welcome. You picked the right day. <laughs> uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, being, teaching through the Bible means we don't skip the hard parts. Um, and if you're new to us here, I just want to say welcome. We really are glad that you would be here. It's good to see some parents uh, in from out of town. Uh, we, love your, we love your kids. We love your, your uh, college students. Uh, we do our best to try and disciple them here. So really want you to feel welcome in this church this morning. We really are grateful that you spend your Sunday with us. Yeah, so Mark chapter 9 um, just kind of have your finger on uh, just 30 through 50. We'll also have 
the words on the screen. Uh, it's not lost on me that not everybody here is familiar with the Bible, and that's okay. Um, if you don't know the Bible, uh, man, you can go to the table of contents. You can, you can do all of that. You can look it up as you go. Uh, it's also not lost to me that when I say open your Bibles, that for most of us, that means open your phones. And so uh, your phone makes it pretty easy to navigate the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have Bibles for you that we would love to give you. This thing right here, man, we, we kind of center um, the motion of this church around this word because it really is alive. It has a heartbeat. God, God has written this book and is currently, it's actually, um, it's been written but it's also continually being written on our hearts and uh, so that we might not sin against God. That's, that's the goal. And we kind of approach this scripture today um, with our eyes wide open. When Jesus says, if a hand causes you to sin, cut it off so you won't go to hell. It's like, hello, what? Don't we normally preach about grace? <laughs> if your foot causes you to sin, cut off the foot. Or your eye, take out the eye. It's like, Jesus, you are, this is weird, man. Close to Halloween and all, but sounds like a horror movie. Is Jesus telling us to mutilate our bodies? No, no, he's not. He has a point, though. And the point is this. Um, our idea of what following Jesus is, it, it also culminates with our idea of greatness. We get following Jesus and to be great in life, we get those twisted up. And this particular part of Mark is just over the halfway point in the whole book. Mark is written as a letter. It's actually Peter's account to John Mark of the gospel. Mark was not there. Peter was. John Mark is taking down notes. Peter's talking about his first-hand account of Jesus' life. And it's been profound. There's 16 chapters. It is fast-paced. It's all of Jesus' life in 16 chapters. And right at chapter 8, a very intentional writer, the Holy Spirit through Mark, right in chapter 8 is a turning point. And what we get in the first eight chapters of Mark is this question everybody's asking is, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And he's performing miracles. He raises a girl from the dead. He, he walks on water. I mean, it's just crazy all the stuff he's doing. We know that he's not a regular dude, but who is he actually? And that's the question that's being asked. And he asked Peter that. And towards the end of that first half of Mark, he asked Peter, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? He says, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. There's the answer. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that they prophesied about. But the problem is this. They prophesied about a Messiah, and everybody believed that their Messiah, their Christ, would come and make Israel powerful again. That was their Messiah. And you know why they wanted their Messiah to do that? Because ultimately, the idol of their heart was for Israel to be great and for them to be great. And so when Messiah comes, inevitably, no doubt, what he is going to do is overthrow this Roman government and seat Israel 
at the top of the food chain again in the world. So Jesus comes and says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how he's gonna be humiliated and he's gonna have to die. And, and Peter does what you would have done. If you thought that Jesus was supposed to bring power and might and no more shame to your people, you would have done what Peter did. Peter rebuked him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's, we're now eight chapters now, and we're in this moment where Jesus, once again, for the second time, he's mentioning that he's going to die. He's going to suffer and die. And it's messing with their brain. Disciples are like, in the, the story before, they're trying to cast a demon out, this little boy, they're trying to, and they can't, they're unsuccessful. And now, it's like the very next scene, they're going to Capernaum, and they're, they can't cast the demon out, and now they're arguing over who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They have a twisted view of greatness. And so do you. So do I. I'm with you. I have not figured this out, by the way. I, to me, like, man, we all got dreams growing up. We have dreams. You did. I did. We all, and on some level, like, we all try to live the Disney mentality. You, just, you can be anything you want <laughs> without any limitations. No shade on, I like Disney, man. I'm in it. I can sing the songs. But this idea that you can just be anything you want, you can do anything you want without any limitations at all, nobody to tell you no, we do that. Those are our dreams. As long as I feel it, I can do it, right? That's what greatness is. My dream was, a lot of you guys are, have good dreams. I mean, it's like, of course, the, you can, you know, kind of the run-of-the-mill things we dream about as little boys and girls, as doctor and president and, you know, astronaut, whatever, um, I don't know if anybody dreams anymore about being the president, to be honest. Amen. Amen. Mine was a pro baseball player. I dreamt about being a pro player. I set my life up that way. Um, went to college to play pro baseball. And then when I didn't become a pro baseball player, I blamed every single thing other than my lack of arm strength. I blamed everything other than my lack of precision on my slider or whatever. Literally, I was like, well, it was the injury. Uh, coach was crazy. Um, I, I blamed everything other than the fact that I was bored with baseball. You know, that, even that was somebody else's fault. All my dreams are squashed, my ideas of greatness. You have ideas of greatness too, and it might, be, it might be good things. Like, of course, being a doctor, there are plenty of pro baseball players who are good people, but as soon as you get that thing, those dreams you have, you realize it's just idealism. You might be dream of getting married. Well, all the married people in the room, if you have dreamt of being married, and then you get married, and then you look at somebody, you're like, who are you? You are not the person I married. I don't know who you are. Acting crazy all the time. Bring back the person I married, please. Friends, relationships, we have dreams. We, it's all idealism, especially within marriage. My goodness. 
put two sinful people in a house together to try and figure out all their needs and try and bear one another's burdens and try and provide eternally for that person's health and sustenance and life. See how that works out. Our dreams, man, they become idealism and we have these visions of grandeur and greatness and what happens is when we don't get that and we perpetually don't, it's cyclical. We compare, we compete, and most people never really stop comparing and competing. We look at other people. I mean, it's just so cliche at this moment, but you hear it all the time. Instagram, dude, it's the whole thing. Instagram itself is a filter. You can filter your life to look like you got it figured out and life is great. I can cook like Gordon Ramsay. Every day is an adventure. I love my kids all the time and they always act really cool. Today, Jesus is going to define true greatness for us. And he would know, I mean, he's the alpha and omega. He's already done the math. He's the beginning and the end, and we need his help. And he's gonna do what he does. As God, all-powerful and all-knowing, he is going to come on our level and sit down. And because of his gentleness, he's gonna teach us about greatness because he actually cares that we know. Let's jump in. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Pay attention to that. He didn't want anyone to know he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Again, this is the second time that he's mentioned his death. Uh, seven full chapters in Mark were one thing, and now Jesus has, all of Mark has turned to Jesus, setting his face like flint towards the cross. He is on his way now to the cross. Jesus mentions his death to them, and then this happens. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Although he already knew it. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Two things, side notes here. Mark mentions on the way twice. And he mentions it twice deliberately. Because now the turning point has been made. Jesus is on the way towards the cross. And everything we read from here on out is on the way towards the cross. Also, this is interesting. It is possible, and some scholars would say it's actually probable that when the Bible mentions they were in the house, not a house, the house, it's maybe probable that they were actually in Peter's house. He lived in Capernaum. And when Jesus pulls a child to his lap, it is possible that that's one of Peter's, that's kind of neither here nor there, I just think it's cool, in Capernaum, in the house. Here's what we do know, the disciples were messed up. They had an idea over greatness and they were arguing. They think greatness is coming for them because of their walk with Jesus and their closeness to him. And Jesus has set his face now uh, like flint towards true greatness. 
Greatness that comes eternally, which requires suffering, pain, and death. But his greatness is different than theirs. Theirs is fleeting. It comes on a whim, in a moment, and then it's gone. All flesh is like grass, the Bible says. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Greatness for Jesus that is everlasting. It never changes, it never loses. It's always great, but it comes through humiliation and pain and suffering. And the early Christians who were highly persecuted, this group of Christians that Mark was written to were, is some of the worst persecution by any religious group of all time. Nero was um, the ruler of Rome. He hated Christians. He, he, he made a mockery of them, but, but in a in a horrific, very insane kind of way. The Colosseum was happening then. Christians were thrown in the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum. People would pay tickets to watch them torn to shreds, I mean it literally, in front of a crowd. How sick. If you don't think that's sick enough, Nero would take Christians, put them on poles, pour tar over them, and light them on fire to light his parties. Christians met underground in the grave. This is the early church. When Jesus talks about suffering and pain and when whoever's reading this letter from Mark to Christians who were uh, inevitably suffering and, 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 and in pain and watch their family members and their friends die a brutal, humiliating death, when Jesus comes and says, in order to follow after me, you must lose your life. This is a very real thing for them. It's real for you too. But we just live in the Midwestern Bible Belt. We forget what it's like to have pain and suffering. The early church was called, they were called lots of things. They were actually called cannibals or vampires because they ate flesh and drank blood. They were called lunatics, uh, bigots, but they were also called the people of the way. The people of the way. The way being Jesus, because Christians were crazy. They were crazy. They believed something nobody else believed. They believed that there's only one way to God. They were people of the way. But here it is, man, and you are, if you're a Christian in the room today, you're a person of the way as well. But the way up is the way down. <laughs> the kingdom of God is, it's a paradox. It's upside down. To be first means you have to be last. To be last means to be first. And now Jesus, with us in the room and with his disciples, are going to show people his way, which is the only way to God. His way. So I've got three things I want you to see about the way of Jesus. The first is this. The way of Jesus is about serving others. It's about serving others. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I love this because his disciples are arguing over greatness and Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great. He actually affirms them. He said, it's okay to wanna be first. However, in order to be first, you have to be last. And he doesn't rebuke you either. He's kind, he pulls us close, and he teaches us, which is what he's doing today. So what is he saying? To be first, you must be last. You must be a servant of all. The word here for servant is actually the word diakonos, which actually translates to deacon. Deacon means servant. Another way that deacon was used was the one who waited tables. Acts 6, we see the first need of deacons in the Bible. We are in the process of training deacons right now in our church. We have elders and deacons. In Acts 6, we see the first need for deacons in the Bible. And literally what was described was the need for people to set the table. Jesus says, essentially, in order to be first, you must be last and a deacon to all. You must be a servant to all. You must wait tables, which at first glance in our 2021 like idealism in the culture that we're in, that sounds about right. I mean, I'm down with hosting parties. <laughs> I'll wait tables. I actually love that, man. I'll cook for people. I'm, I'm all in on that. I like going to people's house and eating. But I mean, especially if it's people I like, you know what I'm saying? People I like being around. You, know, you feel the same way? Like, if it's people you like being around, let's, let's do it, man. We'll have, I'll do it every night. We'll have a party. I'm fine with that. The problem is, is that the older I get, the less people I want to be around. And pretty soon, it's just like, every night's just me and my dog. I like my dog. He's a little weird sometimes, but by and large, he's pretty cool. I mean, it makes sense, culture, like I can do that. I can wait, I can wait the tables. I can be a servant. Just make sure, I just please, make sure that it's, let me eliminate a few types of people before I, you know. <laughs> if they're annoying, if they don't, I, for real, man, if they sound weird, if they say weird stuff, they, you know, and then I have to know, like, in order for me to serve them, I have to know how they voted. And then I have to know like what they think about COVID. And then I have to know like what do they think about masks and in order for me to serve them, I gotta know some things first. Jesus says, be a servant to all. To all. And it makes sense in this world today that we would think that way because we actually, we actually feel about serving like it's actually for our good. That's the way we feel. How many times do you hear, go serve somebody, go do this, go feed the poor or help out in this way, you'll feel better about yourself if you do that. Join the Peace Corps, not, nonprofit, whatever, man. You'll feel actually good about yourself. And all that does is perpetuate this self actualizing self-ambition 
self-autonomy for the whole world revolves around me and how I feel. Jesus changes it all up with a little child. Let's talk about children in the first century. Not seen as adorable. Not a lot of talk about kids in the Bible. Hard to even know which disciples had kids. There's just not, they just weren't seen the way they are now. Man, we love kids in this church. My goodness. I'm just, I love kids. I don't care what they act like. I think it's fun. Man, I'm trying to figure out if parents are about to just like leave. I think it's fun when they act crazy. Just let them act crazy, you know. I love kids. We love kids in this church. That was not that way in the first century. They were a commodity. And if they didn't bring value, then they didn't hold value. Unless you were the firstborn and you had the birthright. But even then, it's like kids would die all the time. They just, and nobody, it wasn't that big a deal. High mortality rates, they were expendable. And just look at some of the stories in the Bible. Pharaoh kills the firstborn. Not a lot talked about there. And I guess everybody in the whole Egypt was okay with that. (laughs) Nobody cared about Moses' life, how he was escaped that. Herod, Herod as well, firstborn, Jesus' birth. This child represented something more than just a child. He was the very least of these. He was the very last. Valueless. And Jesus says something crazy. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Not gets an A+. If you don't receive the child, if you don't receive the least of these, you don't receive me. Which is also echoes Matthew 25. Unless you... Give to the poor and needy and hungry. Feed them. When you don't do that, you are not feeding me. You're not clothing me. Basically, it's not an option for you to have no heart toward the poor. No heart toward the vulnerable and marginalized. And then to say that you receive Jesus. That's not an option. So if we're truly called to this, which Jesus says that we are, If we're truly called to a life of servanthood, then what does that do for our paycheck? What does that do for our house and the things that we have? If we're called to this, if following Jesus means being a servant of all, then what does that do for the way that we spend our time and the way that we look at our calendar? How would you treat your spouse? How would you treat your kids or your friends? Or more importantly, how would you treat your enemies? The way of Jesus is about servanthood. The second is this. The way of Jesus is not exclusive to people who are just like you. It's not exclusive to people who are just like you. John said to him, so before I jump into this passage, just remember the scene Jesus has now said, little child, he said, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you have to be last. And then here's John's response. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
How many, I don't, you don't have to raise hand, but how many teachers in the room that have like said things a thousand times in a thousand different ways and then you, you know that your kids or whoever you're teaching your students don't get it because they say something totally stupid, totally off the wall, totally like not in line with anything you've been saying, like, hello, I've, we have been talking about this for three months. That's what John is like here. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus tells them they need to be servants, and John talks about some random guy somewhere that is, doesn't belong to them. Directly before this story, disciples were having trouble casting out a demon. Now they're arguing over who is the greatest, and now they're mad because somebody else has the power that they didn't. And here's what they, John said, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. What he should have said is, we don't know if he was following you, Jesus. But his mind is on himself. And after all for him, he thinks that Jesus is gonna make him the greatest in the kingdom, not this other guy. Not the guy who doesn't look like them. Surely not the guy who doesn't eat what they eat. Surely not the guy who doesn't walk where they walk or sleep where they sleep. Or There's no way that he gets the power of God. Problem is, is this, this man was following Jesus. He just wasn't following John. When you are absorbed with yourself, when the world revolves around you, whether subtly or overtly, you truly believe that you are the model for thinking, feeling, and acting. That everyone should walk like you, everyone should talk like you, everyone should vote like you, everyone should have the same ambitions as you, everyone should work like you, perform like you, etc. It makes you treat everyone else like they're not up to par because of this one reason, because they're not you. We reduce people to comparisons and competitions. The problem with competing and comparing is you either win or you lose, and that's never real, and that's not the way of Jesus. Pride can't allow us to see how people can believe in the same Jesus as me, but not be just like me. We essentially cannot face that someone could be a follower of Jesus and not a follower of me too. We do this with people, we do this with churches. That's what pride says. But the gospel says this, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Anyone. The gospel says that whoever says yes to this statement, he or she is my brother or my sister. If they belong to Jesus, 
the reality is they belong to you too. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever, whoever. It's the mark of a Christian to say yes to other brothers and sisters even if they don't think the way that we do. Even if they don't look or act like we do. Some of us think that we've cornered the market on what a Christian should look like. And we don't actually even use the Bible to describe them. Some of us, I'm talking to myself, man. We think that we've cornered the market on how a Christian should act, talk, look, what they should decide, their opinions on everything. Christians do this, they don't do this. That is seriously dangerous territory. We never even factor in what the fruit of being a Christian is, which is totally opposite from that whole game. The fruit of the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the marker of Christian. The way of Jesus is serving, and the way of Jesus is not exclusive to people who are just like you. And the third way of Jesus is a way of repentance. Now let's get into this really hard text. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, uh, enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the lame, life lame than with two feet uh, to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All right, a few things to remember. I'm gonna run through this quickly, so please pay attention. Three things to remember. One, this statement is directed to Jesus' disciples, not to the crowd, it's his disciples. Those who, Jesus would say, I have kept, those who's, um, who, whose eternal life is secure in Jesus, they're going to be with him. The second is this. This is about the way, remember, in context, this is about the way that we see and treat each other and other people, the least. And the third, this section ends with this. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Jesus references these little ones. He's not talking strictly about children. He's not even talking strictly about the child that he has. He's talking about the least of these. The translation there would be these least ones, including the guy the disciples were trying to stop. Jesus is using very overt, powerful, and strong language to try and get his very hard-headed disciples, which includes you and me, 
to understand the gravity of what he's saying, the gravity of reality, the real truth. He talks about a millstone. This is a heavy rock. This is a stone around an ox's neck to get him to drag in one direction. It was actually used um, a few years earlier. The Roman government had several zealous Jews that kind of caused an uproar. And the way that they dealt with them was they put a millstone around their neck and they threw them into the sea to drown. He says, better for you to have, it's like having a millstone around your neck, drowning in sea. Sea represents something as well. To the Jewish people, sea represented hell. It represented chaos. And if you remember what happened in Job, Job, where God talks about Leviathan, the creature of the sea, the powerful one that everyone was afraid of. If you're around for our Job series, the sea is chaos. To have the millstone put around your neck and thrown into utter hell, chaos, which also helps us look at Jesus as the one who conquered hell. He walked on water, man. He put the devil under his feet. He talks about hell itself. The word here is Gehenna. Gehenna was a deep ravine where families would sacrifice their children to the god Molech in ancient times. In Jesus' day, it was used as a trash heap. People would throw their trash in there and it would constantly be on fire. There was a constant fire burning in this ravine, Gehenna. It was a metaphor for the fate of those who rejected the way. The tell, the sign for those who follow Jesus, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. That's the tell, your heart towards them. That's the sign. I still ought to say to you this, like, it is not popular today, but it's, it would be ridiculous for us to ignore the reality of hell. Separation from God is real. There is one way to God, it's through Jesus, and hell is a real place for people who don't know Jesus. It's real, this is real. Jesus is giving us multiple warnings about personal sin, but he's also in the context of talking about how we treat people, the way we see people. Personal sin first, cut off your hand. Does Jesus want us to literally cut off our hand? Of course not. The hand represents what we do. Be careful what you do. Submit it to God. Feet, second, cut off your feet. Does God want us to cut off our feet? No, feet are where we go. Third, the eye. Does God want us to gouge out an eye? No, what we see. Personal sin and personal repentance is absolutely a requisite for following Jesus. But also, he's not just throwing in a random teaching about personal sin way out of context when he's teaching about the least of these. He's saying something very countercultural. He's saying this, that you are not an autonomous person. You are not created for you. It's, this is hard and impossible to believe today, man, because we cannot imagine not being able to just do what I wanna do and be who I wanna be, no matter who it affects or what limitations the world or God puts on me. But Jesus is saying you are not created for just you. 
You're not actually even responsible for just you. You are created for and now responsible for other people, for those around you. It's impossible to live a self-indulgent, isolated life and follow Jesus. The way is a life of repentance. It's a life of not exclusion. It's a life of inclusion. It's a life of serving people. And by inclusion, I mean gospel inclusion. Those who say, I don't know what I'm supposed to know. I don't even know if I'm a good or bad person. I just know that I need a savior. They might be all kinds of messed up. You're all kinds of messed up. These are people of the way. And if you follow Jesus, this is you. It's the invitation to hospitality for all kinds of different people to say, man, there is one way to God. It's Jesus. He's really this good. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So as we close, let me talk about this. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were salted and then burned. You are a living sacrifice, according to the Bible. Romans 12 says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, tes that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. You are a living sacrifice. You will be tested, you will be refined uh, by salt and fire. It is impossible to follow Jesus and not be a partaker of the fellowship of suffering of God. To follow Jesus means this. This ain't about you having your best life. It's not about you finally self-actualizing. It's not about you finally discovering yourself to the fullest. Abundant life means that you're gonna have trouble in this world, that Jesus has overcome the world. Pain and suffering, rejection, things like your reputation. To follow Jesus, to say yes to God, means that we lay all that on the table, and I know it's hard. I know. Here's the deal, man. I'm saying all this it is so true. But you and I both know there is no way, there is absolutely no way in the world that you can serve enough people, that you can kill enough sin to ever get in God's favor. No way. You don't have it in you, and neither do I. What are you gonna do? If these are the requirements, I mean, this is, what are you going to do? I'm open to suggestions. Anybody have a good plan? <laughs> this is why the gospel is not just important, it is absolute, it's necessary. 
Jesus is the ultimate example for us. He left heaven to come be with his enemies so that his enemies could become family. He himself became the least of these. He was born in a trash heap, in a stable. He washed his disciples' feet. He was betrayed and abused in every way. Jesus was humiliated and shamed and utterly destroyed in his body and spirit. And how about this? Jesus ate with the worst kinds of people, had dinner with them, went to their house. Imagine the people that you hate the most, that you cannot stand, that society calls bigots and whatever, that society hates, says they're trash people. Jesus pursued them, went to their house. Tax collectors were hated, hated in that day. If women were caught in adultery, they were immediately killed. That was the law. Jesus befriends a woman caught in adultery and says, go and sin no more, and blesses her. He healed, delivered, and blessed the worst of society, not to mention the thief on the cross who was being killed for his thievery. Right next to Jesus, he says, you'll be with me in paradise today. That's the good news, man. That's why we need the gospel so much. And the gospel is this, is you could never be this person on your best day anyway. You need Jesus to do it for you. And he has, he has. First Corinthians says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news, man. That's the good news. Jesus is the perfect example, but he's not just our example, he's our sacrifice. So in your place and in my place comes the perfect, always loving, never sinning, always caring about the least of these, always after true greatness, all the things that we couldn't do. Here comes God himself in the flesh. That's good news. I, you, there's a lot of church people in the room. You've heard the gospel a thousand times, but it's possible, man, that you just right now today, you're like, I don't know if I've ever actually known it that way. I don't know if I've ever actually believed it. And I just want you to know, man, you are in a safe place. And who cares what anybody thinks about you? Who cares? What does it profit a man that he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So I just wanna invite you today Give your life to Jesus. Do it imperfectly. Imperfectly trust God. And then imperfectly follow him the rest of your life. And you'll be up and down and you'll try so hard and you want to be the person who thinks about the least of these. You want God to change your heart and you want to lay your life down and then you'll come back to the fact that Jesus actually did it better than I ever could. Let me trust him again and he'll change my heart as we go along. That's the gospel. We're gonna to come to the table today. We take it every single week in this room. We take the table, and here's why. is because we need 
the remembrance. Because all week you forgot who you are and who God is. So we take it every week. We need the remembrance. We need this table of repentance today. Maybe you need to just pray someone before you take the table. I don't know. Uh, if there are a couple of our leaders, I would love for them to come down and just be available for prayer. Man, take, it, take the table with your whole heart. Lean on him, not on yourself. And if you need prayer for anything today, we would love to pray with you. Let's stand together.